HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hey, this is Katie Mosman-Wadler. I'm the executive director of Heritage Radio Network, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to the only pizza-powered radio station in the entire world. For a decade, HRN has broadcast live from two shipping containers inside Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn, telling the most entertaining and educational stories about food and drink across 35-plus weekly shows. HRN has made it this far thanks to the support of listeners like you. If you like what you hear, show us some love by going to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. With your help, HRN will be able to keep the lights on, the mics hot, and the pizza coming for the next 10 years of food radio. All right. Welcome to the Grape Nation for Heritage Radio Network on tour. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, host of the Grape Nation. We are in Seattle at Taste Washington at the Grand Tasting. It's a food and wine lover's wonderland celebrating Washington State. Um, I'm sitting with three terrific uh, winemakers who I think are doing some very interesting things and have a great perspective on wines in Washington. So let me introduce everybody and then I'll ask them for a minute to talk about who they are and what they're doing. Chris Dowsett um, is the winemaker at Beauty Wine, Beauty Winery in Walla Walla. James Mantone is the winemaker, vineyard manager, and co-founder of Sinklin Wine Cellars. And Nate Reddy, who happens to be a master sommelier, you work that hard even though you don't, um, is the uh, co-owner, proprietor of Hayu Farms in the uh, Hood River Valley. So thank you guys for joining us on The Grape Nation. Um, let's go around the horn quickly. Chris, just tell us a little about who you are and tell me about the winery so it just frames it up for everybody. Yeah, um, Nina Beauty founded the winery back in 2000. Um, she was coming out of Whitman and looking to start a small winery that she wanted to do a couple kind of vineyard-specific blends. And I came on in 2009, and we make about six different wines from fruit we buy and then from our state vineyard down in the Rocks District also. So you're celebrating your 10th year. Yeah, wow, yeah. That, that creeps up on you. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm celebrating a lot of years. <laughs> there you go. Nate, Nate, welcome back to the Grape Nation. I had Nate on uh, during Raw Wine Week with Isabel, and we didn't have enough time, so I thought, you know, while we were here, um, it would be good to grab you. Just tell everybody a little about who you are and what's going on. Yeah, so I started um, in retail in, like, the 90s in Los Angeles and then worked at restaurants, a French Laundry, and then Frosca. Left there in 2006 to learn more about winemaking. Worked in California and Italy, and then for a long time with Maggie Harrison at Antica Terra. 
And then I founded our farm in 2010 with my partner, China. And it's sort of a project about like permaculture and wild farming and biodynamics. Which we're going to talk about. All right, James, you ready? Sure. Go ahead. <laughs> so uh, my wife and I started Syncline Winery in 1999. So this is our 20th year uh, with the winery. We started with the intention of exploring um, Rhone varieties in Washington, uh, but we're located in the Columbia Gorge and we've been, over the years, pulling back into the gorge um, where we have our estate vineyards we're developing, farming biodynamically, and kind of exploring the gorge in general uh, as a more exciting area for us. Right. So, Chris, you're making wines in Walla Walla, and we'll get to that, but Nate and James, let's let's Chris talk. Chris also makes wine in the gorge. What? Chris also makes wine in the gorge. Well, <laughs> I, I get that bring wrong? some fruit from the gorge. Okay, back to so Walla Walla. Yeah. Technic <laughs> technically, you straightened me out. That's fine. And, and Chris actually has a family vineyard in the gorge. Right. So there's my scrub. <laughs> but what I, I I don't know if you could say that you know where you guys are, the gorge and all that is you know the newest wine region or whatever, but. I, Tell people about what's going on down there, James. I mean, there, you, you haven't been making wine down there forever. Um, the, the, the Gorge actually has quite a history of making wine. The, the old vineyard, there, there's an old vineyard that was probably planted in the mid to late 1800s uh, outside of the Dalles. So there's a history of it, and there are some fallow pre-prohibition vineyards scattered throughout right. the area. Um, and so... Uh, when I got there, there was an established industry. It was very small. Most of the grapes um, were being grown by one vineyard, Salilo Vineyard. And leaving the area, uh, a lot of the wineries in the Willamette Valley and outside in the Columbia Valley recognized the, the quality uh, and were bringing the grapes in from there. And right. So there's been a new wave coming in that's been really exciting and that's really pushing the boundaries. I guess that's what I'm talking about is the new wave. I mean, uh, Nate, what... What... what the moment, what attracted you to, you know, get over there? It's actually, I mean, it's pretty, I actually didn't land in the gorge for winemaking and it was really more just trying to find a place where that felt right and where we wanted to live and kind of be and have a farm. That was and then primary. the wine part of it was secondary. And so it takes a really long time after you move somewhere to sort of understand a place and to settle into it. And so a lot of it we're sort of learning on the fly and we didn't sort of realize what an epic and extraordinary place it is to make wine until probably three or four years until after we settled there. The other thing I'll say like about like, the, it's amazing how fast the generational stuff moves. And so like- What do you mean? So like for instance, like in 2010, which is when China and I came to the gorge, when Steve and Chris from Analemma came to the gorge, you're only sort of the new people for like a moment and then you sort of bring in people to help you on the farm and then they start new projects. And so there's this whole, like at this point, there's like a whole other generation kind of like, you know, setting down roots and doing crazy exciting things. And it seems like every single year, someone new arrives. And so the energy is sort of amplifying year after year. It's pretty wild. That, that's a good thing. I mean, you talk about the history and there were wineries and it's been there, but of late and recently, you know, there's some nice things happening. Um, I guess you're the outlier here. Well, I'd like to jump in on one little thing on that issue is, you know, when you talk about that in the gorge right now, I really see that you've got some of these people that 
you know, maybe you've got 20 years or, or 10 years in the gorge, but there's been the second wave coming from some of these great places like Syncline and like Nate's place that I'm meeting people that, you know, I was assistant winemaker for Nate. I was in the cellar with James. I'm starting my own winery. There's this excitement from the people that are there. And I think the gorge is pretty exciting. You know, in the old days, it was kind of a place where people looked at like, oh, yeah, I can grab some Riesling or some Chardonnay or some Gewürz down there that has really great acid to blend in with my stuff that I'm, you know, over the years is getting warmer and warmer and warmer. And so, and now people are going, wait a minute, we're drinking more wines with high acid. We're drinking more, more wines with high aromatics. And so it's really a fun place. And they're really, I think these two are really on a big end of the spectrum right now. You know, that's a good leading because I want to talk about a bunch of things. I want to talk about permaculture, biodiversity, um, organics and all that stuff. You're in Walla Walla and you've yes. been uh, an organic winery. Yeah, we, um, you know, traditionally, um, Eastern Washington has not been very big on organics. There's, uh, is there not, a why? I mean, is a lot of it is they come from mostly farming other things like grains and such where you needed some broadleaf control, things like that. And, and grapes are a little more tolerant. You can have a little bit of weeds out there and they're not great. And so, you know, there's this whole kind of changing lately of more people looking at that. And for us, you know, Nina had two young kids and she was like, if we're gonna have a vineyard, I'm gonna have those kids out there eating grapes. I wanna work with people that are as interested in, as possible in keeping things clean, safe, whatever. So we have uh, a couple growers that grow organically for us, a couple that are just kind of sustainable and some are alive and it's, you know, it's, it's a little bit of training. All the fruit we buy is all by the acre. So we can at least say in our block, don't do this, don't do you that. You can control. And then our contract. own vineyard, we farm organically. And, and one of the great things is, you know, our vineyard is down in the Rocks District of Milton Freewater, which is the newest AVA over in our area. Um, and it is an old riverbed that's hundreds feet deep, literally, of pure cobblestone. And so we farm it by going in and doing a lot of kind of stirring rocks. And so it's actually really easily to farm organically because when we're taking care of the rocks like that, we don't have a lot of weeds. And so without right. a lot of weeds, you don't have a lot of humidity right. and you don't have a lot of bugs. And so, you know, we have been certified organic at our estate vineyard since we planted it. And it's Oregon Tilth, which is because all of the rocks districts in Oregon, which is actually, I mean, I think Nate could tell you it's a little stricter than Washington even. Well, yeah. let me ask James. I mean, you're the... Uh microbiologist and organic chemist. So obviously, you know, the, the earth, the soil, you know, you give a shit about all of that stuff. You know, so the way you approach winemaking is, you know, from a very sustainable, organic, I mean, tell me what you're doing. Um, you know, I think, I think common with all three of us here is um, none of us are really trying to make the best wines. What we're really interested in is, is wines with energy and, and life about them. Um, wines that just kind of vibrate with, with excitement. And it's that elusiveness right. um, that makes a wine exciting. That, that, you know, ideally I'd love to have someone pick up a glass of my wine and two hours later realize they had never taken a taste because they just spent the time smelling it. Really? Um, and, like, that, that's a great goal. And I think that's part of the reason why all of us have chosen the way that we farm. Um, but, but 
that's a great description. I mean, wines with energy, and I hate to use the word style or whatever, but to get that, I mean, what are you doing? You're making a lower alcohol wine, you know, you're farming um, sustainably, you know, organically, all of that. I mean, are those the elements to, in your mind, what makes, you know, a lively wine? Those things are all part of the tools, but they're not. Tell me more. They're not what makes those wines energetic and and life, and that comes strictly from the vineyards. It's um, that energy. That's what really sets great vineyards apart. And you know, you can taste sparkling wine's a great example because you can taste uh, intensity levels in the Von Claire, the the base wines, and these are wines at ten percent alcohol, so they're not picked with ripeness. But you have intensity, and great sites convey intensity without concentration. And concentration is simply dehydration. Right. And so, like, we want that intensity, that life without concentration, and that vitality to come through in the wines, whether they're sparkling or still. And so, like, that's that elusive thing that I think all of us are chasing. Right. Well, Well, if I could jump in for a second. I think that, you know... Being in the wine industry, we are in a sales industry, and we have to sell wine, and we have to get it to people. And it's people who are generally in the press that do radio shows or magazines or whatever that can help get our word out there to people. And um, so we've got these great people that can tell stories for us. But then again, we're also sometimes fighting the, uh, I don't know, the, the national score problems where, you know, for most wines in the world that are going to be the 100 point wines, the 99 point wines, a lot of times that's ending up a little more stylistically similar. You're fighting that Bordeaux blend, very heavy oak, um, and really trying to be similar to these other 100 point wines. Right. I don't think that's the objective at this table. I mean, No. And so I think that you know, we appreciate this opportunity and other opportunities like this with some of the great press we actually have in Washington <laughs> to um, to tell stories and not just put right. numbers on bottles and put them out there. Well, so. Nate, your approach, I mean, you are making wines that are lively and energetic. I mean, the way you farm, the way you've set up the winery, I mean, it's, I, I mean, from my perspective, it's not very traditional. I mean, what, what do we call it? We call that permaculture? I mean, it's a biodiverse... Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the, there's a lot of things like sort of feeding into it, and, and a lot I, I of it... I need you to clear, yeah, yeah. you know, I need you to explain a couple things to me. Yeah, so, I mean, in some ways it may be just easy to explain, like, what happens, perhaps more than, like, the reasons right. behind it. And so, and so, like, on our site, like, at the farm... Um, where this comes like partly from like Liam Baral, partly from like permaculture practitioners like Sepp Holzer, partly from this idea of like having having animals in the vineyard and then this like as many kinds of like plants um, kind of growing in the understory as possible and those plants kind of going through the full cycle of life from like from flowering all the way from to setting seed and kind of being uninterrupted in that process and then sort of I think the extraordinary thing about that is it sets up this like cascade of effects where then all of a sudden you have more insects coming and more birds and more wild animals and sort of things like that. And so the life, it builds and it builds and builds and it's building above the ground and then below the ground, right? So you're doing all these things to also initiate 
more fungal life, more microbial life. And it all happens like from this like sort of, like you're barely touching, right? So you're like trying to get the animals to do as many things for you. You're trying to like, so like by leaving the prunings, like in the vineyard for instance, not touching those, you're feeding like sort of fungal life. Um, and so it's like you're not doing, but then you're like providing this thing that sort of initiates like this fuel for like, that attracts things to like, so, uh, and then you're carrying it. And this is the thing is like you're, and this all relates to like lifestyle and like sort of cultural like practice like as well. And so like the big part about it for us was that it's like you sort of determine like the way you want to live, the space you want to live in, like what you think beauty is, what you think. And then you let that sort of, you just kind of unleash that and let that go throughout the process. And then for me, like there's no, like to like separate viticulture and winemaking is just sort of like completely arbitrary and silly. And so right. for us, like there's really no difference between the, the farming process and the cellar process. So you're doing the same thing in the cellar that you're doing in the winery, right? And so- Same approach. It's like the same, know, same approach feel, yeah. and like the same mentality. So you're trying to encourage microbial life. You're trying to um, allow those things to kind of do their thing like in an uninhibited kind of way. And you're trying to like touch, like when you're touching the wine, you try to touch in the same way that you would touch the plants, like i.e. not very much. So you would do, like cat management would happen in the same way that we treat the understory. So there's no sort of mowing and tilling. There might be a little bit of scything, same way in like the fermenters, you're really gently foot tread, but no more. There's no pump overs. There's none of these sort of like deep extraction sort of, and so you like kind of just let the grapes like sort of gradually just do so what they're going to do like in the ferment anyway. So it sounds like, and James, let me know on this too. It sounds like you do nothing, but you do what you have to to make that environment. Yeah, move you, yeah, you're, you're not. So, of course, you're not intervening. I mean, everyone always says does nothing, and you're never doing nothing, right? But what you're trying. Well, no, it's all I, about I didn't like mean, that's that's what I didn't mean. But you're, yeah, you're not all doing about, any of the things. You're really trying to like. You're trying to allow for an environment that's hospitable to like as many different life forms as possible both in the cellar and in the vineyard. And then you're trying to like, it's not like a trying, you're just, what you it is. end up at like these places of, of like harmony between like all those different life forms and of like stability of those environments. And that's like, a, it's a cultural situation, right? It's a culture of like all these different microbes and peoples and whatever. And hopefully that culture results in a thing that gives you and the people that live there and then the people that come to experience it like pleasure and beauty and um but it's this idea of and and to me there's all this crazy thing about wine i'm always thinking about wine in terms of like ethics these days right right and so you're trying to create this situation where as many things have a home together and can live together as possible and then also in terms of the way then people appreciate the wines in the world you're trying to put out these wines that express a lot of diversity so that then people can kind of come to terms with that and experience it. It might be challenging at first, but then in kind of coming terms, these like strange and unusual flavors leads to like this place of like great pleasure. Right. So James, you agree with that. I mean, obviously that's the environment that you want to be in when you're making the wines. I, you know, I, I I agree. I think that there's also like that that recognition that you have to 
um, not force your will on a place. What and do you mean? So, uh, like, I know Nate farms Hood River Valley and Eastern Columbia Gorge, two very different climates, and he doesn't farm those two areas the same. And it's very much having the humility to step back and listen to what the vineyard is telling you it should do and culturing it's very like you know it's 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 pla it's it's you know a cliche to say like raising children but in some aspects it is it's like you have to direct it in the right directions but also have the humility to realize like not to impose your will on it but that's your approach too right but i mean that, obviously yeah. your property here's not what i want to do but here's how and what should be done the right way for the wines I mean, we, we're making wine, so that at some point we're definitely imposing our direction right. <laughs> on what's going on. Right. Um, and, but it is very much, um, you know, in our aspect, we didn't rip the soil, we didn't cultivate the soil, we left the biodiversity in place. Um, and for me, like, that's, how can a site be distinctive if you go in and amend, homogenize the soil and, and amend it so that it fits this Right. criteria of, of the university and then pretty soon, yeah, you're making good wine, but it tastes like everybody else's wine that did that. Yeah. And you're not really, right. like what I'm interested very in is, point. is pursuing that uniqueness, that, that individuality, that energy, that life that in our area took 10,000 10, years to develop. And, right. and to be fair, like, there's, there's essentially you would like encounter normally like two different types of these sites. So James is incredibly lucky that he's he's working with essentially like a pristine site with um, the geology that's been completely like undisturbed and is one of the first people to ah to be in this place where like kind of enlightened enough to be able to work with that site in a really like subtle and like harmonious way the other class of sites are sites that need ecological remediation um, which are like either old forestry sites or they're sites that had you know, that have had, you know, a hundred years of agricultural abuse on them. Orchards. Um, orchards, right? Right. Um, and so, like, on our site in Hood River, it was organic since, like, the 80s. But then, you know, and it was a kind of organic dairy for, like, a large period. But there's a period where it was, you know, conventionally farmed orchard. And so, like, in those sites and in other kind of sites, you're sort of performing, like, an entirely different function where all that had already been lost... Right. And you're trying to reclaim it is an interesting thing. Right. Which doesn't happen overnight. Now, Chris, I think one of the common threads at the table is, you know, I've sat down with a bunch of people today and they make very singular wines, you know, the Cab, the Merlot, Cab a little Merlot. I think all you guys blend wines because that's when you're, that's what you do. I mean, you have all these... Um, um, you have all these opportunities to do that with all these grapes growing. I mean, is that fair to say, that blending? Yeah, that's a really big part of what we do at Beauty. You know, um, we do have, I mean, we have a single vineyard Chardonnay, um, and occasionally we do small amounts in the tasting room and such as single vineyard things, but predominantly our wines aside from our white Bordeaux blend, are all single vineyard blends of varieties. So we're really looking to express what we think is good out 
wherever we're bringing these from. And, you know, truthfully, it would be wonderful to make one white, one red, and just be done and say, you know, here's my one grape white and my one grape red, take them or like them. But no, when we do an event like this, I'm shouting over people, telling them about the three grapes in this wine and the two grapes in this wine, the percents, why they're different. And, but that's what we find expresses ourselves out of there. And we had ideas about those places before we went in. You know, in Horse Heaven Hills, we like a heavier cab blend with some Syrah. And then in um, Connor Lee, out in the center of the state, you know, Merlot and Cab Franc, because it's a little cooler. It's right. not as hot as some of the other areas. And then in the rocks, it's got to be Syrah dominant, you know, because that's really what, you know, expresses itself the best there, I think, so in our you, opinion. You guys brought some wine. We might as well uh, taste it while we're sitting here throw it over the tongue so w while we're talking about your wines and blending what did you bring here today you brought a beauty 2016 tell me a little more about the wine so the red of Eva of the stones is our um our blend that's based out of the rocks district of milton freewater so pure alluvial rocks we love what syrah does down there so it's really based on syrah and so originally nina worked with um a grower in town, uh, Christophe Baron, who has Cayuse Winery, and eventually he needed all his own fruit, so we started looking at other vineyards, and eventually in 08, planted our own vineyard. So what we planted was really for this wine. We put in three different clones of Syrah, we put in a little Cab and a little Mouvedre, and then a touch of Grenache and some Rhone Whites just to really have some things to play with and see what worked. because. You know, we knew what the rocks gave and we knew what characters we liked out of there, but we didn't know what our brand new vineyard would taste like. And right. truthfully, we've been real happy I was with just what, gonna say you're happy with it? Yeah, with what the Syrahs do. Having those three clones, we can get more complexity, and that's really one of my hugest things is I love having wines that keep you interested. Right. Um, a single kind of a single flavor or aroma through a wine is wonderful when you first smell it, but if you can sit there and enjoy a wine over a meal and it changes um, in five years, it's a little different, that kind of thing. That complexity really keeps you interested. So. Right. Um, Nate, I want you to explain something. Because um, Chris talked a little about how he's growing grapes and blending. I think your approach is a little different. I mean, I'm not sure I'm hitting it on the mark, but whatever's growing out there yeah. is basically where you're pulling off the vine yeah. and you're blending. Yeah, so we farm we farm four different sites and and different things are sort of happening there. In general, we like we bottle just we bottle all the parcels together. So we don't we try, like, there's always multiple barrels, like, in a parcel, and, you know, so you make cull one barrel or two barrels out, but, like, that parcel, and usually for us, it's between a half an acre and maybe as large as ah, two acres in size. I mean, essentially, we pick all our own fruit, and we're picking, you know, between two and four tons at maximum a day, and so those, those picks are always kept separate, and so we're bottling, like, 70... We're making about 75 different wines now. Jesus. And wow. so and so we try to keep the parcels together. So it's like if we pick that half acre parcel, we're not going to... And so where mono varietals are planted in a parcel, we make mono varietal wines. 
we've now so if the parcel's monovarietal, that's what then being that's vinified. what's going to be in the wine. But if there are four or five, but if there are twenty different wines interplanted in the parcel, that twenty goes different into, varieties. Inter- that's so, the blend. So at High U, right? There's 107 Talk great varieties planted now, and so each are field blends based on different moments in history, and so. Though, but the, all those varieties are interplanted and they're picked and pressed together, and then that's a wine. So, so basically, the blending is happening, you know, in the vineyard for lack of a better word. But we try not to blend across parcels. We have a few wines. So at Hayu, there's still 4.2 acres of Pinot Noir and Pinot Gris that are co-planted next to each other in the middle of the vineyard. In that parcel, we make one wine that's called Aura, where there's Pinot Noir and Pinot Gris that sees like like about five days of maceration. Pinot Gris that sees between 60 and 100 days of maceration. And Pinot Noir and Pinot Gris that sees, a, you know, around three weeks of maceration, but completes the fermentation on the skins. And then some late harvest picks from there. And all those will get blended together to make one wine. But ah. to be clear, we're making, we're talking about like 150 cases here. So right. I mean, you know, right. not, it's like not on this like big scale or whatnot. Right. So James, your approach, similar or not as? Um, and I think with blending, um, it, it can easily, you can easily impose the will of the winemaker rapidly. And it's something you have to really be careful about. Um, and it, it, it's often we'll sit down with blends and we always are asking ourselves, is this what the wine wants to be or is it what we want the wine to be? And it's it's really important to realize that, that sometimes um, little defects or deficiencies can be really charming. Um, and So, so not, does the answer lean towards where the wine wants to be most of the time? Well, we try to, we always try to back off our will right. as much as possible. And But you can get going and you can, you can spend entire days chasing something. And then at the end of the day, when you ask yourself, is this really the direction we should be going, or is you know is this the wine, the direction the wine wants us to go, or is the direction we want to go? Yeah, I just say like a few words about that. It's so interesting, and like so even like I'm blending on a small. I don't think the scale matters. Like so, you can look at the wines like from a parcel and all the berries barrels that kind of contribute to that, and and two different things happen. So you can there are these wines like James said that like have like little defects. Sometimes culling those away kind of heighten intensity and concentration and kind of purity expression. But there's also times when including all those little defects create a wine that really has more ease and harmony and humanity than removing them. And so a lot of the work that's done on the blending table has to do with these barrels that that don't seem maybe necessarily tasted alone as pure an expression as the others and kind of deciding are those taking away from the wine or those kind of bringing some like kind of life and humanity to it? Right. Guri? I, I do, you know, and it, it's always, we never blend to like hide something. It's, right. It's always trying to make things more interesting and, and relative. Do, when you taste that wine, does it take you to where you think it should be? So Chris, when you're doing that, it's not about percentages or consumer necessarily. It's yeah, I think you know none of us here are just making wines to bring stuff in and put stuff in bottles. So you know we're not we're working from the ground up on everything. You know even stuff I buy or James buys, 
you know, we are in the vineyards. And so it's really important to us to do what the vineyard expresses, what the vintage expresses. And then, you know, more than anything for the, you know, the, the, the winemakers will expressing on, you know, you have to do that when you get down to that final blend because you are blending. So you're putting some will into it, but you have to go in and say, you know, you often have that wine. You go, boy, that's a that's a crowd favorite right there. But I'm not sure that's the wine we want. You know, I bet we could get a little more by adding this in, a little more complexity. And then you do the full steps. You go, what do I like? I would like this one. I might like this one. This one's pretty good too. What what wine makes people happy? And you go through that. Then you go, well, what what wine says beauty to us, you know, beauty winery. So then we go through that and then we're like, well, and what wine says 2017, you know, and this vineyard. And cause you can't, what prevails a combination of um, things or it is the same usually thing always the final one, but to work to that really helps to get there. You know, you can't just go walk in and say, okay, this is what we got. So this is what it's going to taste like. Right. Um, we all are, uh, blending and making decisions for our wines as they're happening a lot of times you know i'm i work with a couple wines that are different varietal blends and i'm looking at different picking times and it's based a lot on history but most years it's based on whatever i pick first okay that came in like this i'd really love to have a little this to make a great wine to make that i'd love to you know let that one hang a little longer and that you know, for someone like us compared to someone that's bringing in a full block of 10 varieties, you know, that um, gives us that ability to have some voice of the year, but also, I don't want to say put our will on it, but at least, at least show what we think is shining that year. Right. I'm not trying to, you know, sit down with last year's wine and say, I got to have one exactly like this. Because this wine, you know, we sold out in X amount of days. Yeah, or I don't got think X anyone's points. doing that here. And so we want there to be consistent quality in our wines, but we don't want there to be, Maybe, you know. Just say, yeah. yeah, and like really quickly, just contextually, right? They're gr- like incredible wines made on both sides of this, right? So you have someone like Bartolo Mascarello, right? Where you're going to work with like, you know, a range of sites in an area to give expression. And then you're going to see someone like Jean-Francois Ganavat that's going to bought all these sub-parcels. And both are, like, really, like, relevant ways of approaching the expression, you know, of a place. And I think both are important to have in an area to kind of let people see it from different angles. Um, And I think you just have to choose which of those paths makes more sense for, you know, how you relate to your sites and your cellar. I agree. Um, James, before I forget... Let's talk about the wine that you brought in. Um, so I brought in a uh, sparkling Gruner Feltliner from the Columbia Gorge. 100% Gruner? It is 100% Gruner. It's it's Method Champenois. Um, and uh, so this was a site that we'd been making still wine off of for years. And uh, this part of the vineyard, we always fought to get it ripe enough to make still wine. And, and it really took me a few years before I was humble enough to listen and realize that the vineyard was telling me that it didn't want to be still wine and it wanted to be sparkling wine. Um, and so we started out making a couple barrels for the cellar crew just to see what would happen. And then uh, from there, we, we've 
converted it pretty much into a straight sparkling wine program. So when it tells you it doesn't want to be a still wine and a sparkling, I mean, what, what what's the reason? It, it Why do you shift from the still to the sparkling? It just... Well, you know, it, when it came to, like, harvest time, um, we weren't building bricks like we should. The, the leaves are turning yellow. The vines are shutting down. And the last thing we wanted to be doing is picking grapes when the vines are in shutdown mode. Um, because you're starting to lose, the, the vines are losing their life and energy, and you don't want them to start pulling that life and energy out of the grapes and back into themselves to get ready for winter. And instead, it's like we want to pick them um, when they're at their peak expression, their, that energy, you want that. And I think like Underwood, where we grow these grapes, um, the acids come across, well, they're high, but the high acid's not just the, the ticket. The acids hit your tongue, and they almost kind of like vibrate. Right. Um, because you can always get high acid by adding acid in the tank or whatever, and, and it never conveys that that vibrational energy that you get from natural acidity. So, and how much sparkling are you making? Is this it, or you're? No, we're we're making almost a thousand cases of sparkling wine now. Interesting. Um, let me ask you a question. I don't know if you have to or want to, but how do you create awareness for the wines? I mean, I know, Nate, you've gotten some pretty good write-ups, and you've been in New York. Um, you know, same with you. James, same thing. You know, you're all in a good category. Is that enough for you, or you just do what you do, and whoever wants it takes it? I mean, do you, do you have to embrace social media? I, I mean, Nate sort of answered the question. You're here because you want to reach different people. Yeah, I mean... Like, listen, I mean, I think any of us would be lying. It's a business. If that part, it isn't, no, and it's a business because, like, nothing that we do, none of this life that's so amazing and all the things that happen is possible if you can't pay the bills. Like, then it's over, right? And that's, like, would be incredibly sad. And in this day, like, in this world, like, I mean, I don't think any of us have the luxury of sitting around and waiting for that to come to us. Like, maybe, I mean, James, we're in totally different places, right? Like. James has been doing this for like 20 years, you know, and he, that work is behind him. And now he gets to like, I mean, not on, listen. James, you can go home now and take a nap. Yeah, You're done. No, but I'm not, say, I'm not it's, saying it's it like that. It's a never ending battle. Right. It is so hard. So the right? answer is you really have to do create awareness. Um, you know, if you're not making a lot of wine, it's not like you have to push so hard and sell it, but you want to make sure, you know, people understand what you're doing, right? Even for but, a little bit of wine, it's a lot, you have to work yeah, hard. But it definitely is. I s see it all the time. You know, you go into a shop of places that you've been for years and you're talking to them. They're like, oh, yeah, we just love your wines. We love your wines. We just can't get enough of them. You look around, they're not on the shelf. And you're like, <laughs> well, that's uh, why. Uh, yeah, because, you know, you become kind of a, a favorite and they're looking to see what's new sometimes. And so you got to keep reminding people. So is social media a play that's important or not necessarily? I mean, it, it didn't exist 15, 20 years ago the way it does now. It reaches a good audience in a good way. It's, it's important to you probably whether or not you embrace it or not. So you're going to be on there, like, sort of regardless. And from some, other people. Yeah, from other people. Yeah. And for some people, that's probably... You know, taking a picture of the bottle at Chamber Street Wine or yeah, something. For some people, that's probably the right place to be in. For other people, to be more active. I mean, I think that the big thing now is that there's just... People are relating to wine in like such a different way. So like there are more wineries out there, and then the, like more consumers. But this day where like people just bought cases, like one winery or like a handful of wineries, and they bought cases and cases of that same wine. Today it's just so much more 
like dynamic where people are always, you know, buying a new wine every single time and so many wines to choose from and so many wineries there. I don't know where I'm going with this, but just to say that it's like, it's become um, a, you know, a very different world and, and a world that you have to like really be engaged with. I think it's pretty hard to right. like just so engagement wait. engagement is important. Yeah. Um, I promise I'd let James make a break from here. I can make a couple more comments. Because I know, <laughs> I, I know Poppy told me, you know, just get him out of here. Um, is, I want to touch real quick on that though. Yeah, like, I, I'm wondering it, how you approach it is it important? Well, I, I think like um, as a small producer, you know, people are like, oh, you make a little bit of wine, so it's not that big a deal to sell it. But it's actually, as a small producer, it's even more important that you sell everything. You right. have zero buffer for right. like right. not it's selling everything. zero buffer. And but it's also at this time, um, the industry, as Nate's saying, has, has changed a lot. The consumers have changed. Um, as restaurants, you know, we're never going to really build a regional food and wine um, entity if the wine industry only emulates, say, Piedmont and Rhone and Bordeaux and Burgundy, but the restaurants are pursuing their regional thing. But we're emulating something totally different. We need to figure out as producers how to emulate our regional thing to work with the food. That's a whole nother show. I mean, I agree with that. I mean, that that's like a big deal and all of that. Um, and then I am going to step out for the Mariners game. So I, I did. Oh, Poppy didn't tell me it was a Mariners game. She told me it was like something important or a seminar. But we're going to say goodbye to James, um, to James Mantone, James the winemaker at Vineyard and Vineyard Manager um, at Syncline Wine Cellars. Um, thank you for coming by. Um, Chris and uh, Nate, sit with me for another minute or two. Thank you, James. Um, so, in, in closing, um, we want to take a picture before you leave. Nate, I just want, I, I don't know if you answered this question specifically, but I, I just want people to know what permaculture is. Oh, yeah. So, like, permaculture may be is the potential to be like actually the most important thing was possibly the most important thing that there is to, like talk about in the world right now and so so explain yeah so permaculture is is a it's a it's a way of it's sort of a it's a way of designing the world where you look at like all the elements and all the beings that like sort of exist and and you and you look to put all of those things like into harmony and it can and it and and it it's often you see it in agriculture but it's also like it integrates architecture and government and ways of it's basically sort of trying like all that like so often like we don't use our our resources as human beings like our resources in our mind our ability to like design and like sort of think about like what's possible uh, we haven't used those things that well to create the world like a, as it exists today and permaculture is it's beyond just a, cover crops yeah and it's a really thoughtful system and, for like yeah. looking at our life it's and how point. we as human beings interact with the environment and resources and a good point and everything to sort of design a world that that doesn't just work for one person or one thing, that it works for everyone. Well, well, all beings and the planet and the whole thing. And this may, it sounds like a platitude, but the, 
if you look at the people that are doing it in an extraordinary way, Jeff Lawton, Sepp Holzer, um, it's extraordinary what these people are, what's, and, and so many of the things, there's so many platitudes about, I mean, really lies about what we're capable of doing in terms of providing resources for people, like in regard to shelter, in regard to food, right. in regard to happiness. Um, we can do so much more than what people commonly believe that we can do. And the problems in the world are totally solvable. Unfortunately, there's too many people saying that it's too late, or you can't do it, or, or they, so don't, wanna or do they it. don't want to do it. Or they don't want to do it. Right. And permaculture is, oh, is really amazing as a, as a resource for kind of illustrating, no, in fact, like, we have the solutions to all these things if we all kind of believe in it and kind of banner, minor resources together to solve it. And so I encourage everyone to like, honestly, the most of, like visit jefflotton.com, like, listen to the man and like, and then branch out from there, but. Well said. Um, guys, we got to wrap up the show. Um, Chris, I want people to know more about Beauty Wines. Where's the best place to get more information? Um, we are located in the airport district out at Walla Walla. So we have a great website that's got a lot of information. Give me the uh, address. It's www.beautywinery.com. B-U-T-Y yes, dot com. B-U-T-Y. Booty could be B-O-O-T-Y. Yes. Okay? So that's uh, Nina's last name. Um, and it's a great site with lots of information. You can get tasting notes. You can get stuff on Nina and I. You can get things... Um, about the background of the winery and the vineyards. And so, you know, I think if you start there, you can usually get you some could, jump off points pretty well. Right, the Walla could, Walla Wine Alliance, the Washington the Wine Commission, right. you know, those are good for um, all of us in the area. And then, you know, as you go to other areas like the Gorge, you know, there's wine alliances there too. So, Thank you. Nate, if people want to know more about how you farm, where do they go? <laughs> so there have been a couple amazing articles. There's been a lot of great articles. So one by Catherine Cole in 750, and then recently in Pipette magazine that Michael Alberti wrote. Their third edition. Yeah, so first, fairly no, first edition of the You were in Pipette. the first one? Yeah. Oh, okay. So that's, the I think, an amazing place you to like find out about it. You like the way they covered everything. Yeah, okay. Michael wrote it. It's amazing. And then... We've updated the website, and so it has a little more Thank relevant God, information now. Yeah, I mean, it's like, am I not hitting the right yeah, thing no, no, to no. get more info? So if you go what? to highuwinefarm.com right now. Oh, H-I-Y-U. And then go to the vineyard section, then there's quite a lot okay. about the farming systems there now and the different sites we work with. And then you can just visit us in the winery in Hood River. Um, so people can come and visit? Yeah, so we're, so there's actually a kitchen in the winery. Um, Smock shop? Hi-U. Hiyu. So if you go to come, if you come to Hiyu, if you go to the Hiyu website, you can make reservations for tastings and tours and dinners and lunches. And so the biggest part of what we do is like this, this sort of culinary thing where it sort of brings everything full circle and where we serve the food that we're growing and the wines, but also talk about sort of the community that comes I, from around. I think that. you really need to go to the site because there's a lot of that going on. I mean, we talked about a lot about what you're doing and all that, but the when you get there, there's some interesting things. So I encourage people to go to the site. All right, I want to thank everybody. I want to thank James Mantone, who bolted out on us to go to a Mariners game um, from Syncline Winery. I want to thank Chris Dowsett, who is the winemaker 
um, working with Nina Beauty at Beauty Wines, and I want to thank Nate for coming back. Nate Reddy for sitting with us from Hiu Farms. Um, did we give the web address? Did we say HiuFarms.com? www.hiuwinefarm.com. All right. Thank you, guys. Thank you for joining us on the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We were at Taste Washington um, and Visit Seattle uh, for making this coverage possible. Thank you guys again, and we'll see you soon. Bye. Thank you.